I think with the with some uh, further training in specific areas, it can make make a huge impact. Sixty percent of the nurses that work in in native communities are indigenous or Native American, but they don't have a sixty percent voice, right? Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Di Donato, and I'm Marion Leary, and you're listening to Amplify Nursing a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. On this first episode of season three of the Amplify Nursing podcast, we talk with Dr. Teresa Brocky, an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing. A member of the White Clay Nation, Dr. Brocky's research focuses on achieving health equity through community-based interventions for the prevention of suicide, trauma, and adverse childhood experiences among vulnerable communities. We talk with Dr. Brocky about the health inequity among indigenous populations, her crucial work in this area, and the importance of having diverse representation in the profession. So Dr. Brocky, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us today. We're really excited to have you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I am looking forward to um, this interview and, and talking a bit about my work. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what brought you into nursing? Well, uh, I grew up on the Fort Belknap uh, Reservation, which is my home reservation in Mont- rural Montana, and was um, really inspired by the work of the public health nurses that worked in our community. Um, I saw the work that they did with individual families, individuals, families, and in the community, and I saw that they made a really positive impact. And so I admired what they did, but it wasn't until my grandmother, um, some years later, my grandmother was um, diagnosed with cancer and wanted to die in her home. And that experience, I I helped um, care for her in her home. I I had the night shift along with um, some of my cousins and and aunt. it wasn't until that experience that I really saw firsthand the level of care that the public health nurses provided. Um, it was beyond public health nurses. It was the community health representatives as well. They provide uh, culturally um, appropriate care um, beyond, um, I think, what a spiritual care, I think, is beyond uh, what a what a nurse does uh, often. Um so it was it was that experience that really inspired me to to become a nurse. And shortly thereafter, I, I set upon becoming a, a nurse. And um, I think originally um, I I wanted to be a, um, a just just attain a, a bachelor of science in nursing and become a, a public health nurse. That was, that was my goal. Uh-huh. And I wanted to work uh, within tribal communities. And I thought, these are, you know, they're doing great things. I want to do this. I want to be able to do something that gives back to my community. So I um, went to um, the University of North Dakota for my undergrad. Uh, I was uh, uh, awarded an Indian Health Service Scholarship and a 
uh, and a scholarship from the um, Recruitment and Retention of American Indian Nurses program uh, for the for the bachelor's program. And while I went through the the um, program, you know, we learned some a little about research, um, but I wasn't particularly interested in it. I was just interested in making a positive impact in my community. So I finished at the University of North Dakota, and then I set about to um, find a job. And I ended up in, in uh, California, in Southern California, um, and worked at the San Diego American Indian Health Center, and then in Northern California at the San Jose American Indian Health Center, the first one as a public health nurse, the second as a community health services director. And I think that second experience is where I was really able to grow as a, as a, as a public health nurse, but also as a leader of a department. However, it, it quickly became clear to me that I lacked some skills that if I had those skills, I could do my job. I could be more efficient at what I was doing, leading a department of 13 and developing interventions for that community. Right. Um, so I applied for the MSN program at, at Hopkins, the School of Nursing, and I came with with a plan of getting this master's degree and then going back to California for uh, more work with that northern um, in Northern California. And uh, I came uh, and it was all that I thought it would be. And I was inspired by um, the uh, academic preparation at Hopkins. Mm -hmm. My first thoughts of these really fantastic uh, faculty was everyone should have this experience, this educational experience. Everyone should have that opportunity uh, just because they were they were phenomenal faculty and um about about halfway through my my master's program um i realized that if i wanted because i had made my goal of of um as a public health nurse of of positively impacting the health and health care of native people um that if I wanted to achieve that goal to the best of my ability, that I it would it would be best done as a as um, a nurse scientist. So you know halfway through the program, and then I had to right I had to ne- negotiate with myself because I love the work as a public health nurse, working in community settings, um, and I, I had that was something that I loved, but I had to give up to to go to this different level and uh, well I could still have an impact on these communities just in a different way mm-hmm. so I um I applied and and, and continued on with then with the um PhD program at Hopkins so I got my master's and my PhD at Hopkins so I think um you know and and now of course I'm I'm doing what what I think is the best way to impact um the health disparities experienced by Native communities. Did you have many role models of Indigenous nurses growing up, or were the nurses who were you coming into your community from outside of your community? No, they were from my community. Um, so there, I think there are a couple of different structures. Um, mm-hmm. 
for Native communities. One is if the tribe runs the public health nursing program, they'll tend to be primarily um, Native nurses. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, um, uh, that the Indian Health Service runs the public health nursing program. Um, and they, they tend to be non-Native um, now I can't, don't quote me on that because I don't have the data, but that's just, yeah. you know, my observation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, indigenous nurses, again, from our community, making a very positive impact in our, in our community, especially, you know, my, my, you know, again, speaking from my experience, I, they worked with my grandmother, my grandmothers. So I, I saw that um, and admired it. Can you talk a little bit about um, what your research philosophy was coming into your PhD program versus what you ended up doing? Did you know that this was the kind of work that you were going to be doing when you first started, or did you kind of grow into that? Um, I'll go back to that, uh, finish up on that other question, because there was something that I probably should add. Mm -hmm. Although the public health nurses inspired me, I didn't know any Indigenous nurses who had a master's degree, and I certainly didn't know any that had a PhD. So I will say that, and then I'll move on to the next question. I've learned so much through education, a PhD program. Of course, you learn a tremendous amount of about research, but about philosophy and um, health disparities and social determinants of health, all of those things, I think that that impact health outcomes. When I first came in, I, I think, or when when I first started the program, I, I made the assumption because of the description that I was familiar with that, um, especially on those kind of more negative um, notions about our community uh, around alcoholism around um poverty around um suicide around you know uh, many negative factors um that it was like all community all native people had a problem with alcohol all native people had a problem with suicide all native people had you know, we're, we're poor and suffered from poverty. But mm-hmm. uh, what I come to realize is that's just not true. You know, like with alcohol, more people in Native communities don't drink. And there are tremendous differences based upon where you live. Mm-hmm. So geography has a huge impact on health outcomes. Um on substance use, on poverty. Um, so it's not about race. So it's not, you know, you're not assigned this health outcome because you're native. It depends on where you live. Mm-hmm. And in particular, um, if you look at the data from the from the areas that have uh, reservations, native reservations um, that were established during the reservation era. Um, it's those communities that tend to be very poor, um, under-resourced, 
in multiple multiple ways. Um, so the health outcomes are very different for them. And then in, if you think about poverty, there's there's a growing gap between the rich and poor native because of casinos and um, oil. You know, casinos have made some people very rich, but for the most part, if you look at geography, those communities that have been that include those reservations established during the reservation era, those communities tend to be the poverty is the same, health outcomes are the same, and that's really where like suicide clusters occur. They don't really, at least from the data that I've seen, they don't mm-hmm. occur in affluent um, communities. Can you talk a little bit about that, the data that you collected around suicide in the Native communities? Sure. Um, So in 2010, the Fort Peck, Nakoda and Dakota tribes declared a state of emergency related to suicide, youth suicide, a cluster on their reservation. Mm -hmm. And we approached them and we collected data in 2011 from 288 um, youth 15 to 24 years of age. I'll talk about that setting first before I t- kind of talk about the data. So so this reservation was, was established in 1851 by the Fort Laramie Treaty. Mm-hmm. And it's, one, it's a reservation within a county listed among the 100 poorest and 10 least healthy in the United States. The tribal law enforcement, again, this is that under-resourced, uh, the tribal law enforcement of, of 18 police officers and three criminal investigators is 50% of what is needed to police this area and population, area of this size in the population. So, And at that time, which was 2011, the violent crime rate was five times higher than the rest of the state and three times higher than the U.S. rate. And, and nearly half of those living on the reservation live below the federal poverty level. So, so it's those settings again. These were these pl- spaces were created by the U.S. government. So it is mm-hmm. settings where health outcomes are very drastically, and not just this year. Um, this has been from the beginning, from inception. Right. They were not established to to provide a space where people could grow heal, thrive. They were a place to hold people. Right. You know, in 2011, we collected data again from 288 um, Native youth. Um, And what we discovered from that was um, probably one of the highest rates prevalence of of suicide ideation and attempts that I had seen in in a community sample. But similar to um, homeless youth living in Winnipeg, Canada, a similar rate prevalence. Um, so high rates, high prevalence of suicide ideation and attempts. Um, and we find multiple um, associations. And um, more importantly, we found some um so multiple risk factors, but we more importantly, we found some some protective factors. Mm-hmm. Um, we found tribal identities. So those youth 
who um, identified more with their tribal culture. Um, that was protective for high-risk substance use. Mm-hmm. And substance use is one of the um, stronger risk factors for suicide. Mm-hmm. And then um, communal mastery, which is group efficacy, was also protected for high-risk substance use. Education um, engagement was protected for high-risk substance use. Um, And then we found that historical trauma, as we measured it, uh, as we operationalized it, was associated with suicide ideation and suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of... um, so we did the study. Uh, these were our findings. And then we spent maybe 10 months going going through the data, teaching the community the data, the meaning of the data. So we went variable by variable through the data and talked about the findings and what they needed to do, what the tribe needed to do to, to, to address some of these, these factors. So um, once we did that, uh, I think the, the, the group that I worked with, the community uh, members, tribal employees who um, work with youth, mm-hmm. had, had a um, good understanding of the data and then could direct where we were going. And so what, what they um, saw from the data was that there was not only this High, high prevalence of ideation and attempts, but also the um, the association between violence and ideation and attempts and violence and trauma. Um, so what they the direction they took us was to to start early by working with the Head Start program. We've created an intervention for parent-child dyads in the Head Start program. Well, it's an interventional, uh, intergenerational um, prevention intervention mm-hmm. with, uh, so Fort Peck, Dakota, and Dakota uh, caregivers and their three to five-year-old children. So with this intervention, we, we um, hope to uh, reduce uh, symptoms of historical and contemporary trauma. Um, and everyday stress among among parents or caregivers. Um, we hope to improve parenting um, and then Im- improve uh, children's emotional and behavioral development outcomes um, as a way to reduce future risk for suicide and substance use. So from that data, we've developed this intervention. Um, mm-hmm. And the name of it is Little Holy One, Wakaniza. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the Dakota word for child. In 2019, we were awarded a, an R01 uh, from NIH uh, to evaluate this intervention. Mm-hmm. And um, if it's successful, um, it will be implemented across all Head Start programs at Fort Peck. And then um, we'll scale to other Native communities as well. We hope you're enjoying this episode. And we'll be back with more in a few minutes after this quick break. Hi, everyone. My name is Ali Tayeb, and I am a PhD-prepared RN, United States Navy veteran, and host of the RN Mentor Podcast. 
As a nurse with a background in leadership and professional development, I created this podcast as a way to highlight careers of nurses with a focus on mentorship and what we can learn from individuals at the peak of their professional careers in nursing. The RN Mentor Podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and on most other platforms. I look forward to sharing this time with you on the RN Mentor Podcast. When you're talking about historical trauma and you're talking about group efficacy, you know, you, you said that, you know, group ef- efficacy is is one of the contributing factors. So I'm assuming that it's it's the inability of the group to be able to achieve um, needs or wants that make them feel um, efficacious. So communal mastery is protective. Mm-hmm. So it's a okay. protective factor, yes. and not a risk factor. So it's a protective factor for high-risk substance use. So those who are closely associated with their families in their community, and they see that as a way of success, they, the way they reach success. Okay, so I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about it conversely. The intervention means to encourage the group to be successful. Yeah, so what, what the intervention is going to do, so there are 12 mm-hmm. components. Okay. So four of them we've adapted from uh, to CEDA or Common Elements Treatment Approach. Mm-hmm. Um, those sessions are to help parents and caregivers address their own stress or trauma. And then the parenting skills that we've we've adapted for um, lessons from Family Spirit, which is an indigenous parenting curriculum. Mm-hmm. And then we've developed four cultural lessons from that first study, that study on suicide. Um, so the, the cultural lessons are on enhancing tribal identity, mm-hmm. enhancing communal mastery, healing contemporary and historical trauma and then we've added a um an additional component on smudging so um promoting smudging for stress reduction Mm -hmm. or stress management Um, so those are our four lessons um and it's a 12 component curriculum that will be implemented with the parent child dyads do you find it difficult to find funding for things that you are trying to implement in the indigenous communities? Originally, um, we were, we were a little apprehensive because we knew we had, um, uh, and when I say we, I mean me with my tribal, not my, but the tribal partners, Um, we work together. We develop all the logic models, the timelines and all of that. Um, We knew we had a, a good idea and we thought we could make an impact based upon the findings that from the suicide study we thought we had a good chance of having a positive impact on head start children and we were excited to see um you know the results of that years down down the line but we of course had to get started i think um our first um our, our first application to NIH um, was not awarded. Um, and uh, I was disappointed more than anyone because this is a great idea. This is, you know, needs to be funded, but, you know, it has to do with how a grant is, our proposal, proposal is written. So we went back to the drawing board, we rewrote it, um, submitted the next year, got a really good score and it was funded. 
Um, and then all of a sudden we have this money when we had talked for years about what we're going to do when we get this money. And all of a sudden we actually have to do the work. And, um, you know, sometimes it's it's a little daunting, but still, I think it's work that needs to be done. And um, we're still really excited about it. Um, we've So we did, we have, you know, some funding from, from NIH for this. And we're looking for additional funding for... Um, we then um, also another project. We we did some formative work for implementing a suicide surveillance and case management um, system um, called Celebrating Life, um, and we just need to find some implementation funding for that. Um, we're hoping to do that this year, but um, yeah. So we we have a good start uh, with this with the R one funding, and we were able to get. Um, additional funding, foundational funding from the Annie Casey Foundation. And that was really helpful because the work that they funded helped us um, improve our second um, application to, to NIH when we were funded. So um, that was really, really helpful. Okay. So you're, you're piloting the study. You're hoping that the results will be positive so that you can spread it out throughout the entirety community. Are you working in your tribal community or is this different than from where you grew up? This is different from where I grew up. This is a neighboring reservation community. Although my grandmother was mm-hmm. from, from the Dakota tribe, from, from this reservation, my grandmother, my mother's, let's see, it would be my great, great, great-grandmother was from there okay um so I have a lot of relatives there um and I learned while I was there while I did my work there I learned a lot about my own history so it, it was beneficial to me as well as you know the work that I did yeah so I've worked with them in 10 years now and we we have um you know a long line of activities we've done together and um, looking forward to finally, you know, once, once COVID is, is um, not such a big problem in that area, we, we look forward to moving our project forward. Um, and of course the results, and then um, we're hoping to get the, that celebrating life project funded. In the meantime, um, as I'm working at, uh, Fort Peck um, in 2019, my own community um, experienced a suicide cluster. We, or at least I changed um, a little bit of my direction to work with my own community. So we submitted a, um, a grant to the, to the WT Grant Foundation in, that had to have been 2019. And we're, we didn't, we didn't get the, the award, but again, we we revised and resubmitted, uh, and we're in the in a, one of the finalists for that grant. And then we applied for a uh, one of the larger grants through NIH. It's um, the Native American Research Centers for Health um, funding mechanism uh, to work with Fort Belknap, and um, we we got a good overall score. Uh, so we're really excited about that. We don't know. We won't know until March um, if we get funded, mm-hmm. but um, we're hopeful. Uh, 
and again, it's it's a, a package. I mean, if, there's multiple projects, right? So we have two research projects. Mm-hmm. One on um, doing some work around suicide clusters, understanding that, mm-hmm. and and from that creating um, um, a postvention interventions for for people who have lost a loved one to suicide. Um, and then the second is is developing a um, suicide cluster response plan. And then the next uh, research project is um, adapting the um, My Plan app developed mm-hmm. by Nancy Glass, kind of violence prevention app that has been shown to be um, uh, reduce suicide risk. So we're going to adapt that and we're in going to include the four cultural lessons that we developed with Footpack okay. into that app. And then we're going to another project. Um, there's a training um, component to this funding mechanism. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing with that is we're going to develop a, a pathway for public health, uh, STEM, and um, nursing uh, for high school students, and then adapt Johns Hopkins School of Nursing um, Mental Health Certificate Program. It's a psych mental health certificate program uh, for nurse practitioners that we're going to adapt for nurses that work in Native American communities. So that one I'm really excited about because uh, the possibilities that nurses have for positively impacting uh, Native communities is great is i mean is there's great potential there mm-hmm. uh, i think with the with some uh, further training in specific areas it can make make a huge impact 60% of the nurses that work in in native communities are indigenous or native american but they don't have a 60% voice right right they're not um they don't have a strong voice, and not maybe because they don't want to, but they're not prominent. I think in the dis- decision making or approaches um, to working with these communities. Right. I think that could change, you know, um, and I think that would be a good thing if nurses were given um, a role in impacting or um, developing strategies and imp- so. Um, yeah, I'm excited about this work because it not only has um, implications for this community, my own community, if um, if we train nurses to help meet the mental health treatment gap and meet the needs of their, their own community, you know, I think a lot of other communities would be interested in, in their nurses being trained through that mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, well, at the same time, I think it also has a global implications. There's, um, and it's not just in the United States that indigenous people have poor health outcomes and there are these very pronounced health disparities. It's, it's globally. And it's the nurses that work in these communities. And it's primarily indigenous communities. I mean, indigenous people that work in, in these communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, it's like if I want to have, you know, this positive impact on the health and healthcare of Native people, I can do that through these through these interventions and these programs. But you know, I think we have to step back and look at 
Indigenous health on on a global scale. Speaking of Indigenous health on a global scale, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected Indigenous people globally? In countries where there's COVID is not a problem, it hasn't had an impact. Mm-hmm. In New Zealand, it's, it's not really been an impact because they have um, they don't have COVID currently. Right. Yeah, and I'm not well versed at this moment um, about the data relating to other communities. I think that um, in the United States, obviously, became very clear which communities had had um you know were severely impacted by covid has it been difficult to get treatment or is it more of a proliferation of the spread in the community that was an issue well i think that if we take a look at the navajo nation and the impact it had on them the services that were available for them mm-hmm was insufficient. The shortage of nurses and doctors in those settings was is very high. Mm-hmm. In Navajo, it was around it, you know, it's around at least the nurse vacancy rate is about thirty three percent. When there's a problems with housing in the in these settings, so there's multiple families living in the same house, mm-hmm. and so you can't. It's difficult to contained spread and then if you further look at the Navajo Nation like it's 30 to 40 percent of people did did not have access to running water or electricity wow and this is 2021 that's you know it's it's these places that again these were created by the U.S. government that of just uh you know the health disparities, the health outcomes are are very different for people living in those situations. Right. And that's, I I think it's that's those types of settings where it's, where COVID has just been able to do whatever it wanted. And it was very difficult to contain, slow down, stop. Right. As, as it had been in in many communities in the U.S. that have really big disparities and uh, lack of resources. Well, Dr. Bracky, thank you so much for talking to us today about the really important work that you're doing. Is there anything else that you would like to touch upon? No, I think um, that we've primarily captured everything. I think I've talked about most of the work at Fort Peck. Mm-hmm. And now we're expanding to Fort Belknap. Um, we talked about all the work that we're doing there, especially around nurses in suicide clusters. Well, I think um, we go back to Fort Peck. The, um, we, we just got funded a, an administrative supplement to look at social networks mm-hmm. among caregivers um, as, who are part of our Little Holy One project. Uh-huh. So we'll explore how social network uh, characteristics of caregivers are related to both risk for and protection from suicide and opioid use. Mm -hmm. And then we'll examine the impact that Little Holy One um, has on the social networks of of, uh, caregivers. So I've been at Hopkins for 
four years now. I'm especially proud of the the team that we've put together and the effort that we're making to have a positive impact on on Native communities. Hello, Marion. Hello, Angela. How's it going? It's amazing. How are you? I'm great. I really enjoyed your conversation with Dr. Teresa Brocky. She was wonderful. Um, Dr. Brocky is currently at Johns Hopkins University, and she's doing incredibly important work with the Lakota and Dakota tribes, um, looking at some suicide clusters that have been happening in those communities and looking for things that can help to um, prevent suicide in young people in those communities. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting her talking about um, the disparities, not only with indigenous communities in the United States, but also within indigenous communities in the United States. Yes. So she she pointed out to us that there is a growing disparity between the rich and the poor due to geographic location and um, also with oil being found on some native land and casinos being built on native land that has just widened that gap of disparity um, very much like it has across the entirety of the United States, but specifically affecting those communities that is contributing to uh, a growing despair among some young people. You know what? The other thing too, Marion, that I found really interesting about this conversation is she pointed out that 60% of the public health nurses that attend to the indigenous people are indigenous. And that really struck me because we don't necessarily see that throughout other minority communities. And I was wondering how, you know, what are they doing differently in those indigenous communities that are supporting people in those roles? Yeah, it's a great question. One you probably should have asked her. Yeah, I probably should have. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm sure you still can. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it didn't come to me until after we got off. I think I I feel like I have a little bit of a delay today. (laughs) Well, you know, it is... It's uh, season three. It's season three's kickoff. So yeah. we're, we're both a little a little rusty and on break. But yeah. you know, I'm excited that we're kicking off season three with Dr. Brocky and her amazing work. Hello, listeners. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, check out the RN Mentor podcast hosted by Dr. Ali Taib. In an upcoming episode, the RN Mentor podcast will feature Dr. John Lowe, a Cherokee Native American tribal member who is a leading educator, researcher, and global advocate of culturally competent healthcare for Native American and Indigenous populations. You can listen and subscribe to the RN Mentor podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you do your podcast listening. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa Donato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing podcast 
and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can do us a solid, please rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.